for joining me again. This is going to be the wrap-up episode of The Relativity of Stained Glass and Math. Um, maybe an epilogue, maybe just the postscript. Not really sure, but I uh, appreciate you coming back for this one. Uh, be sure that you are subscribed on whatever uh, channel you're getting this. And to uh, like and write me a review. Hey, thanks for joining another episode of A Critical Image. So let's get into the final episode here. A history and future of disbelief. Can literacy go too far? What happens when a system gets too large? What could singularity have to do with this? In the last post, we looked at how fluent literacy can lead to a type of authoritative rebirth that we called reauthoring. We discussed the end of the Dark Ages or Medieval period and the beginning of a Renaissance. The word renaissance literally means rebirth. Marking this historic transition was the restoration of various types of literacy. Since then, in the Western world, there has been a general increase in literacy. Paired with the ideas of the Enlightenment, naturalism, and the birth of modern science, over time, myriad doubts about the accuracy and viability of the Bible began to spring up, both from inside and outside the church. Just as a side note, speaking of Christianity after Reformation, really, ever, I feel like I should say the church is as plural, but it just comes out awkwardly. In the Renaissance, which essentially coincided with Reformation, we begin to see some new philosophies take shape. Not only do we get skepticism and relativism from thinkers such as Hume and Kant, but we also get dogpiled by the loss of traditional authority as seen in Kant, Hegel, Marx, and Nietzsche. In that same time frame, a budding new middle class was thirsty for status of any kind. This meant that ideas could spread rapidly by attaching the knowledge and understanding of such philosophies to aristocrat-like intellectual status. Further, the semi-dismantling of the feudal system gave many, if not most, some sense of hope for upward social mobility. The traditional pairing of education and wealth persisted, and maybe even got stronger, and as each socially lower class reached upward, not only in the capitalist sense, but also intellectually, they got drunk on the trickle-down of a more and more watered-down version of the newest ideas. In sequence, as a result of the spread of secular philosophy, we see a deterioration of the authority of the church and Christian religion. Um, I could be wrong, but I think that each of the philosophers mentioned before and many others distance themselves from Christianity in one way or another for the sheer fact that Christianity was failing to deliver on the goals and ideals put forth in the gospel. I don't necessarily think it was an impatience with the eschatological, you know, with end-time prophecy, but the failure of the church to exhibit practically the lessons of the Sermon on the Mount. It's as if these thinkers sought to scaffold the morality and metaphysics of Christianity without its mythology, without its story. For example, Nietzsche's death of God is as much a critique of the absence of activated belief and lack of morality that logically flows from a loss of religion as it is a denial of any actual being. Tangentially, I mean, what purpose would an ubermensch serve 
if everyday Christians practiced the golden rule. But I digress. When a young, literate, but perhaps only semi-fluent person who has not had their needs met by the church reads or hears phrases such as, God is dead, it can ring true without them needing to inspect the details that lead to such a conclusion. These details are readily available to one passing down such ideas, people who have actually read and become fluent in the ideas, but because the messenger, the teacher, is inherently more fluent than the receiver or the student, the teacher is capable of choosing whether to reauthor or rewrite the text as he or she passes it down. To put it another way, the teacher always knows more than the student. Therefore, the teacher has the power to skew the lesson to his or her motives. This power dynamic can create a barrier to true fluency for the semi-literate student. The two barriers. There seems to always be at least two barriers to fluent literacy. Number one, getting the illiterate literate. And two, finding benevolent authority for those who remain illiterate regardless of efforts to educate. The remedy to the first issue, getting the illiterate literate, seems to be a no-brainer, education. Uh, but I'm just going to leave that alone for now because of the mess that the American education system is. I mean, I don't know, maybe this isn't even a barrier in other countries. The second issue, which is really how do we govern the ignorant, is even stickier. Uh, and I was just afraid that statement would provoke a fight in comments uh, or elsewhere. But my original wording has my answer built into it. The perpetually illiterate need a benevolent authority to guide them. But the problem remains, where do we find this benevolent authority? The simple Christian answer is, as always, Jesus. But because he is no longer physically present, finding a human proxy is quite the tall task. While no human is purely good or completely evil, the continuum of theologies developed from a mixture of power authoring and benevolent authoring of the gospel has divided Christianity into hundreds of denominations. The overlap and disagreement between any two could be both minuscule and infinite. Nowadays, to speak of the authority of the church could mean something different for almost everyone who speaks of it. Nonetheless, Christianity at least does have a model for benevolent authority in Christ. So, let's take a look at secularism and see what they have. How Science Will Fail Contemporary science has as its biggest strength its biggest weakness, decentralization. Looking at the way the Reformation took absolute corrupting power from the centralized Catholic Church's hands, the decentralized nature of science prevents such a circumstance from occurring in the first place. At the same time, the overwhelming project of science demands multiple authorities, each so specialized in increasingly siloed disciplines that to make generalized practical statements, much less a coherent cosmology, is nearly impossible. Further, the limited resources for research grants has introduced capitalistic competition to the field, along with all its trappings and temptations. All that aside, 
the literacy issue poses the largest threat to science as a cosmological competitor to religion. As Galileo would have it, mathematics is the language of science, and many of us do not have the ability to become literate enough in math on the scale necessary for full scientific understanding. Further, because of specialization, scientists from one discipline may be, and probably are, only partially literate in another. A zoologist probably doesn't fully grasp subatomic physics, and vice versa. To understand all the sciences, one must only stand the basics of most of it. Any truly universal cosmology faces the challenge of not being an inch deep and a mile wide. So far, the solution to this problem has been to forego a unified theory and allow each discipline to be its own authority because they seem to overlap pretty well. This potentially creates another problem. Who gets to be the authority where disciplines overlap? And what happens when two disciplines that should overlap don't? What happens when the links in the chain of authors doesn't hold together? Mathematics is like a big building with many apartments. We have at least arithmetic and analysis, algebra and topology, and we have geometry and probability theory. Very often the tenets of these different apartments seem not to understand each other. And that's a quote from Paul Lorenzen uh, from his book, Constructive and Axiomatic Method. I uh, haven't read the whole book, but I just found that quote. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, although that quote is about math, it also highlights the current problem of macro and quantum physics. The scientists understand each other, but their equations don't quite. The equations that work for large objects don't always work for small objects. Currently, all attempts to create a unified theory have resorted to some sort of metaphysics. <clears throat> I'm looking at you, multiverse. Interestingly, most people don't recognize it as a metaphysics because the language is advanced mathematics, which is not easily comprehended. And when it gets translated to literature, something gets lost in translation. While there are numerous important and critical scientists in every field, the names we all know, the Arthur Eddington, Stephen Hawking, Brian Greene, Neil deGrasse Tyson, etc., are mainly popular because of their ability to translate such math into the language of the laity. They have become the apparent authority not only for their scientific achievement, but because they are so fluent in their language and our language that they can translate and or reauthor it into another. These authors give their subject new life. In their reauthoring, their subjects are reborn. But up to what level can we trust these authorities? If we do not or cannot read the language of their ideological foundation, what is to stop them from misusing the trust and power we give them? Could the limited number of them participate in a scientific oligarchy? Can a peer review process prevent a conspiracy toward malevolent authorship? Just as the overreach of the papal power was prevented from within the church, science might just take care of itself.
the cyborg reformation. If human-machine integration is to truly take place, if the augmentation of humans with computers is to reach its full potential, then one day our brains will be bio-digitally synchronized with the complete catalog of scientific information. But will we be able to glean meaning from it? Will there be any meaning left or just information? Just as verbal literacy led to a widespread critical viewing of biblical text, will universal mathematical literacy promote cynicism toward the lack of a unified science? Or will there be a unified science by then? Is unification and or computational singularity an eschatological dream? Let's examine the problem of cyborgism, or the augmentation of computers into the human animal, for just a moment. Wait, am I allowed to talk about cyborgs without saying the words Donna Haraway? Shout out. Meh, maybe not. Anyways, that's a different manifesto. When humans have a supercomputer in or with or as their brain, everyone should be fluent enough in mathematics to translate the various equations that explain the Big Bang or Higgs boson particles or gravity, etc. Once fluent, what if we can all easily deconstruct the construct of physics? What if we can all find the inconsistencies that derail any unification theory? What if we find out the multiverse was all just a mathematical metaphor, equational poetry for the actual physical world? What if it's just a play on numbers that tricks our logic into following a valid syllogism based on false premises? What if we recognize that the numbers still don't add up to our conscious experience? You may recognize these proposed questions as slight variations of criticism to Christianity or really any religion. The analogy only works if one accepts math as an actual language of signs, just as Hebrew, Greek, and Latin and English are. Many people, especially mathematicians and scientists, believe that math is more than a language. They see it as the essence of reality. Some believe that we can break down the physical world to a point where only numbers would remain. To an extent, many believe that underneath everything, there is only math. I disagree. I don't believe there is an underneath. More precisely, I think the physical world is the underneath. Not necessarily in a fully platonic way, but in that if physical matter is broken down, I think one will only find more physical matter. I believe that only when physical matter is added together do we get something more. The physical must be added to in order to get a metaphysics. Meta plus physics literally means after the physical. One must have a proto-physics to be under or before the physical. But before we get too deep into a discussion about if math is a first principle or whether the chicken or the egg came first, Let's just look at what makes a chicken come from an egg and what makes a viable egg come from a chicken. <sighs> Here, unfortunately and for many reasons, I must leave you with a cliffhanger. First off, I'm not sure how to wrap this up quickly and neatly if at all. Second, this is a good place to launch into a much larger discussion of emergence. The next post will begin a sort of typological cosmology that I'm still working out. It will try to explain how singularity is synonymous with non-being, while at the same time claiming that a trinity, 
or the trinity is the bare minimum for existence an existence that goes from zero to infinity instantly for now a respite The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works, before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning, when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world, or its fields, or any of the dust on the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Proverbs 8, 22-36 NIV 